we looked at those four words, and today we want to focus, focus on the fourth one, which deals with spiritual love, God's love, agape. And so as we prepare our hearts uh, for this time, um, I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word, and we're going to read out of 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, and then jump over to Romans 5 and read verses 1 to 11. So 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 to 7, and then Romans 5, verses 1 to 11. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 4, Love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it is not irritable or resentful, it does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. And then Paul, over in chapter 5 of Romans, beginning in verse 1, he says, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace, through, we have peace uh, with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Verse 3, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. Verse 6, for while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Father, we pray this morning that you would apply this truth to our hearts. We thank you for the time of celebration of communion and the sacrifice of your son. We celebrate it together as the body of Christ. We acknowledge, Lord, that without your sacrifice on Calvary, we would not have any hope of salvation from our sin. And we now look to you and your word for insight and for edification. Teach us more about your great love this morning. We pray this, ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. Remember last week we were looking basically some points, God's love is a lifestyle. It's not just a feeling. We covered that. We said God's love is greater than anything else you may pursue. And the third point was God's love can be seen and understood. It's not just some ethereal thing out there in the air. Uh, We looked at those four words, eros, which is intimate sexual love, storge, which is family love, phileo, which is friendship love. But we want to focus this morning on the fourth one, Agape, which is spiritual love. This is the love of God. It gives us a sense of security. It teaches us that God loves us no matter what. It's this love that we're going to focus on this morning, God's amazing 
love. I'm reminded of a story, I think I told you this before, but with D.L. Moody, the famous evangelist, back in 1861, there was a, a man who was unregenerate. He was a wild gambler. He was a drinker. His name was Harry Morehouse. And he rushed into a revival meeting in Manchester, England, looking for a fight. <laughs> but instead, he got saved. And six years later, the famous evangelist D.L. Moody was preaching in Dublin, and Morehouse came up to him, and he asked him, I want to come to America and preach the gospel. And Moody had no idea who this kid was. He thought he was a kid. He looked like he was 17 years old. He was older. He didn't know who he was. He didn't know if he could preach, so he just kind of brushed him off. And after Moody got back to Chicago, he got a letter from Morehouse, and uh, it said that he had landed in New York and that he would like to come and preach at Moody's church. And Moody wrote a cold reply, basically telling him, well, you know what, if you ever come west, look me up. Just kind of thought, I'll never see this kid. Well, a few days later, guess who shows up? There he is, Harry Morehouse. And uh, he didn't know what to do with him. Moody didn't know what to do with this kid. And he was due to go out of town on Thursday and Friday. So he told his deacons, he said, you know what? I don't know if this kid can preach or not, but we're going to give him a chance. Let him preach Thursday night and Friday night. I'll be back Saturday. I'll take him off your hands and we'll, we'll deal with it then. Well, on Saturday, Moody returned and he asked his wife how the young Englishman did. And he asked, did the people enjoy him? Did the people like him? She said, oh, they liked him very much. <laughs> well, she said, did you like him? <laughs> oh, yes, I, I liked him a whole lot. And she said, he preached two sermons from John 3.16. And I think you're going to like him too. But he preaches a little different than you do. And he said, well, how's that? What do you mean by that? And he said, well, he actually tells sinners that God loves them. And Moody kind of looked at her and said, well, he's wrong, and huffed off to his study. Well, Moody went to hear him that night, determined that he would not like him. <laughs> but that night, as Morehouse preached again from John 3.16, on God's great love for sinners, Moody's heart began to melt. He could not hold back the tears. For seven nights, Morehouse preached from John 3.16 on God's love. And the final night, Morehouse concluded his sermon by saying, My friends, a whole week I have been trying to tell you how much God loves you. But I cannot do it with this poor stammering tongue. If I could borrow Jacob's ladder and climb up into heaven and ask Gabriel, who stands in the presence of the Almighty, if he could tell me how much the Father how much love the Father has for the world, all he could say is, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. D.L. Moody says those sermons from Morehouse changed his life and his ministry. He writes, I have never forgotten those nights. I have preached a different gospel since, and I have had more power with God and man since then.
when we read Romans chapter 5, verse 8, but God demonstrates his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's Paul's version of John 3.16. He actually wrote Romans before the gospel of John was written. You understand that. So he understood God's love. And Paul wants us to love, he wants us to know and experience the love of God more deeply through this truth. Even in verse 5 of Romans 5, he says, For the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. And in verses 6 and 8, which we'll focus on this morning, he talks about this life-changing truth of God's great love for us as sinners. And in doing so, he shows us a hope from heaven that will never disappoint us. See, the thing that anchors our hope of heaven is just that, the love of God within our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. Our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's love, that love that sent Christ to die for us while we were yet sinners. See, God's love is not based upon us getting our act together. Aren't you thankful? I am. Um, We don't deserve it. It's not based on our track record of performance to guarantee its continued flow in our lives. Rather, God's love is based on the fact that God is love. 1 John 4, 7 tells us that God is gracious Exodus 34, 6, that he extends his love, he extends his grace to sinners apart from and in spite of anything from them. See, if you're sitting here this morning as a Christian and you think somehow that God saved you because there's something good in you, you're sorely mistaken. The first point This brief outline is our hope of heaven is secure because it's not based on anything good in us. Amen? I mean, Paul emphasizes this with a series of synonyms. He just lists them off. Verse 6, he says we're helpless. He also says we're ungodly. Verse 8, he calls us sinners. Verse 10, he calls us enemies. See, to appreciate God's love, we must feel our own great need. For the Savior. You have to be sick before you can be made well. You have to be broken before you can be made whole. Martin Lloyd-Jones talking about God's way of reconciliation in Ephesians 2. He talks about this and he says this. In order to measure the love of God, you have first to go down before you can go up. You do not start on the level and go up. We have to be brought up from a dungeon, from a horrible pit. And unless you know something of the measure of the depth, of that depth, you will only be measuring half the love of God. Now, Jesus illustrated this for us over in Luke. If you turn to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 7, he illustrates this story for us. This is where Jesus is dining at the house of Simon the the Pharisee. I mean, you have to picture this scene in your own mind. You have this very religious man, a man who took great 
pride in his religious observance. And this story is found in, in, this illustration is found in verses 36 to 50 of Luke 7. This man never ate unclean food. He tithed meticulously. He kept the commandments of Moses. He kept his distance from those notorious sinners that were out there. He wanted to find out if this upstart, uneducated rabbi from Galilee was legitimate or not. And as they reclined at dinner, a woman who is a known prostitute in the community with an alabaster vial of perfume was all of a sudden standing at Jesus' feet, weeping. She wetted his feet with her tears. She wiped them with her hair and kissed and anointed them with perfume. And Jesus seemed to be pleased, if you will, with her actions. I mean, this Pharisee, Simon, was aghast. He was thinking, in verse 39, it tells us, if this man were a prophet, he would know who and what sort of person this woman is who is touching him, that she's a sinner. See, that would never happen to Simon. He's too righteous for that. But our Lord, in his sovereignty, and his omniscience, knew what he was thinking. So he told him a story. A lender had two debtors. One owed him 500 denarii, the other owed him 50 When they were unable to repay, he forgave both of them. Then Jesus asked in verse 42, So which of them will love him more? And Simon answered, obviously, I suppose the one whom he forgave more. Kind of makes sense, doesn't it? Jesus answered, you're correct. And he drew the lesson. The sinful woman who had been forgiven much, loved much, But the one who was forgiven little, loved little. His point was not that Simon had little to be forgiven of. That's not his point. In fact, Simon had not even shown Jesus common hospitality. You read the story. He was rude. He was arrogant. Rather, the point was that Simon did not realize how much he needed God's forgiveness. And so he did not love Jesus as much as this woman who knew her great need for a Savior. Many of you may have been raised up in a Christian home, or at least a religious home. Maybe you didn't get into much trouble growing up. Maybe you were a pretty good kid. See, you're prone to be more like Simon than the prostitute of that story. The point is this, if you want to know and you want to experience the great love of God in Christ, you have to see more of the awful depths of sin that lurk deep within your own heart. To quote Lloyd-Jones again, he said this, it is to the extent to which we realize our inability and incapacity that we realize the love of God. Paul shows us our inability 
in these verses. Secondly, we need, we greatly need the Savior because we're helpless, we're ungodly, sinners, we're enemies of God. First of all, we're helpless. It means we're incapable of working out any righteousness for ourselves. It's impossible. One commentary says it means total incapacity for good. The want of all moral life such as, such as is healthy and fruitful in good works. It's, it's impossible for you to come up with that. Lloyd-Jones says total inability in a spiritual sense. See, we look at people and we say, well, that's a good person. Well, they may be good by the world's standards. But they would never, ever even come close to meeting the righteous standard that God requires of us. But so that you see these men are not making this up, let's see what the Bible says about our helpless spiritual condition outside of Christ. Well, first of all, there in your outline, you see we're spiritually dead. We are spiritually dead. We're living in disobedience to God. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, it says, And you were dead. You were dead. He's talking to Christians. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked. See, we needed God to raise us up from the dead. We were not able to save ourselves. Jesus told the religious man Nicodemus in John 3, 3, unless one is what? Born again. You can't just clean yourself up. You're in too big of a mess. You need to start all over completely. You need to be born again, born from above. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, Nicodemus was about as religious as you could get back in Jesus' time. He was a Pharisee. But all that religion could not get him into the kingdom of God. What did he need? He needed a new birth. And just as we could not produce our natural birth, it's not like one day you said, okay, I want to be born now. (laughs) You had no say in it, right? You had absolutely no say in it. You didn't pick your parents. You didn't pick your birthday. Just as we could not produce our own natural birth by our own efforts or willpower, so it is spiritually. It must be an act of God. You can't save yourself, basically. So we're spiritually dead. Secondly, we're not able to see the light of the gospel to be saved. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, it says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they may not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. We couldn't see the light of the gospel. When you were in your unsaved state, it's not like one day you just decided to sit down and and read the Bible and, and, and get saved. You could read the Bible till the cows came home. Probably didn't understand it. Probably didn't make a whole lot of sense. It's not that you didn't understand the words on the page. Obviously, if you had an English Bible, you could understand that. You could comprehend that. But I'm talking spiritually. 
And when God quickens your heart and you come to Christ and he deposits within you the Holy Spirit, he gives you spiritual eyes to see. We were unable to understand spiritual truth. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Remember chapter 2, verse 14, but a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them. Why? Because they're spiritually appraised. If you're not a believer, you don't have the Holy Spirit. You can't understand spiritually the text of Scripture. God has to open our eyes to understand the gospel. Thirdly, we're not able to hear God's truth. In John chapter 8, verse 43, Jesus asked the Jews who were challenging him, why do you not understand what I am saying? Did you ever get in a conversation with somebody, maybe a little kid, a young person, you're telling them to do something, and they just don't do it. And you end up going, don't you understand what I'm telling you to do? That's what Jesus was doing. He says, why do you not understand what I am saying? But then Jesus, because he's God, he went on to answer the question for them because they had no idea. He said, I'll tell you why. It's because you cannot hear my word. They lack the spiritual ears to hear. Also over in John 14, 17 as well. So you're not able to see the light of the gospel. You're not able to hear God's truth and comprehend it because it's a spiritual truth. And then, thirdly, we're not seeking God. We saw this in Romans chapter 3, verse 11, did we not? When we studied through that, there's none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. And also, we're not able to submit to God's law or to please him. In Romans 8, verses 7 to 8, it says, The mind is set on the flesh, and it's hostile toward God. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. For it is not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh, what? Cannot please God. So when Paul says, we were still helpless, he means that we were totally, completely, unable, unwilling to do anything to bring about reconciliation with God. Reconciliation means you're, you're bringing a relationship back to the way it should be. But he doesn't stop there. He not only calls us helpless, he says we were ungodly. Look at verse 6. Christ died for the ungodly. I mean, this, this takes us all the way back to the indictment of the human race back in verse 18 of chapter 1. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. See, to be ungodly is to be unlike God. That's what that means. Well, who is God? God is holy. God is apart from all sin. To be ungodly, it means that our ways are not God's ways, that our thoughts are not his thoughts. Isaiah 55, verses 8 and 9. There is a 
humanly uncrossable breach, a chasm between us and God. Not only helpless and ungodly, but we're also sinners. Paul says in verse 8 of chapter 5 of Romans, while we were yet sinners. We saw that in Romans 3.23, right? For all, what? Have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this auditorium today that can say, oh, I've never sinned, I'm perfect. No. We're all sinners. The difference is some of us are saved. We've had our sins forgiven. We've looked to the cross. We've committed to following Christ. And some of us have yet to do that. If you're sitting here today and you've yet to put your faith, your trust in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you are still considered a sinner before a holy God. The essence of sin is to fall short of God's glory. You miss the mark. God says you've got to be at this level and we don't even make it. We do not live for his glory. We have no concern for his glory. Rather, what do we do? We live for ourselves. We live for our own glory. We're concerned about us, me, my. We're sinners. But he also says, beyond that, we're enemies. We're helpless, ungodly sinners who are enemies. Look at verse 10, Romans 5. Paul describes us as enemies. He says, for while... For if while we were enemies, enemies of God. Chapter 8, verse 7 says that we were hostile to God. We were alienated from him. We were opposed to his leadership, to his lordship over our lives. We didn't want that. I mean, it's kind of depressing I mean, you may be sitting here going, well, you're not helping my self-esteem, Pastor. This doesn't make me feel very good about myself. Exactly. Exactly. See, if we do not see the depths of sin from which God rescued us, you cannot, it's impossible for you to appreciate how amazingly great his love is for you. See, Christ did not come to earth to help you polish your self-esteem. That's not why Jesus came to earth. He didn't come to earth to make you feel good about yourself. The truth of the gospel says that he came to earth for your sins, to pay the penalty that you couldn't pay in order to reconcile you to God. If you're sitting here this morning and you don't see yourself as helpless, you don't see yourself as an ungodly sinner who's an enemy of God, then guess what? You're not going to see your need for a Savior. And you'll never have assurance about your hope of heaven. Today, everybody's talking about death, death here, death there. Are you doing what you should be doing to prepare for that day that, by the way, it's an appointed day. 
We will all, pending the Lord's return, die one day. And guess what? We're going to die exactly on time, according to God's schedule. But you'll never have assurance about that hope of heaven in all eternity if you're sitting here this morning and you base that hope on your own goodness or your own merit. How good do you have to be to be with God in heaven? You have to be perfect. That's what Jesus says. You have to be perfect because the Father's perfect. Our hope of heaven can only be secure if it's not based on anything good in us. Secondly, our hope of heaven is secure because it's based on God's gracious love for us while we were yet still sinners, it says. God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were yet still sinners, guess what? Christ died for us. That word demonstrates there means to show, to prove, to establish the fact God's gracious love took the initiative to save us. From what? From our helpless, ungodly condition. See, these verses show us that salvation is totally from God and his great love. There was nothing in us that was lovable or something in us that motivated God to send the Savior. As God pictures Israel back in the prophetic book of Ezekiel, chapter 16, verses 3 to 6 and 9 to 10. I'm not going to turn there and read it, but basically to sum it up, he pictures them as an unwanted newborn infant thrown into a field squirming in our blood, a piece of garbage about to die. And he took us and he bathed us with water and he anointed us with oil and he wrapped us in fine garments. See, salvation stems from that kind of amazing love. God not only took the initiative, but God's love for us is far higher than any example of human love. Look at what he says in verse 7, Romans chapter 5. He says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. Now as you read this text and you do some study on it, some commentators argue that, that Paul is drawing a distinction between the righteous man who keeps the law but is not very kind and the good man who is both kind and righteous. I don't think that's his point. Because the two terms are never distinguished like that in Scripture. Rather, I think Paul makes an initial statement here, and then he qualifies it by granting that in some cases, a person may die for a good person. According to them, they're good. But who would offer to take the place of a scoundrel who deserves to die? The answer is Jesus. <laughs> Jesus would. In fact, he did. He died for only one kind of person. He died for ungodly sinners. None of us, none of us deserved 
what Jesus in love on Calvary did for us. That's the incredible aspect of our salvation that we can be thankful for. We didn't deserve it. Well, he not only took the initiative, it's not only a far example of human love, but God's gracious love for us sent none other than Christ. I mean, who is the one whom the Father sent to die for our sins? Well, if you do a study on this, you'll find in Matthew 3.17, he was his beloved son in whom he was well pleased. Or John chapter 1, verses 1 to 3. He was the eternal Word who was with God and who was God, who created all things. Or in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says that He is the one who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of His nature, who upholds all things by the Word of His power. This is the one who God sent to be the Savior of the world. He is the one whom the angels of God worship, whose throne is forever, who laid down the foundations of the earth and made the heavens, whose years will never come to an end, Hebrews says. Paul says that God demonstrates his own love for us in that Christ, his Son, died for us. Doesn't that demonstrate Christ's love for us? Yes. Because Jesus and the Father are one. Leon Morris, in his commentary, says this, Unless there is a sense in which the Father and Christ are one, it is not the love of God that the cross shows. But because Christ is one with God, Paul can speak of the cross as a demonstration of the love of God. See, on the cross, Christ didn't die to persuade the angry God of the Old Testament to love us. That's not what he did. That's how some people picture it. The Father and the Son were one in their love. That devised a plan of salvation for guilty sinners in eternity past, before the foundation of the world. The fact that it required the death of the eternal Son of God, that should cause us to bow and wonder and thank God for His gracious gift. But we also see here that God's love, God's gracious love sent Christ at the right time. The right time Christ died for us. Leon Morris explains this phrase. He says, two ways of looking at the time of Christ's death are combined here. He died at a time when we were still sinners and at a time that fitted God's purpose. The second way emphasizes that the atonement was no afterthought. This was the way God always intended to deal with us. He did it when... He chose. So in the grand scheme of all the ages, Christ's death 
guess what, was right on schedule. Who killed Jesus? God. Paul explains Galatians 4.4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. But on a more personal level, he died for us at the right time in that we were perishing. We had no hope. You know, if you're not drowning in the pool, you're not really concerned where the lifeguard is, right? But if you see someone or you are drowning in the pool, you want the lifeguard. You want someone to come and save you. We were perishing. We had no hope. We would have been doomed if God had not sent the Savior. See, part of the message here is you must come to the end of trusting in yourself. Come to the end of trusting in your good works. Why? Because it's only then that you'll see your own hopelessness, your own helpless condition. C.H. Spurgeon put it this way, you've got to stand before God convicted and condemned with the rope around your neck so that you will weep for joy when God at the right time sends Christ into your life as your Savior. Well, God's gracious love here also sent Christ, it says, to die for us. This word die, if you just look at the text in Romans 5, it's very prominent. It occurs once in verse 6, twice in verse 7, again in verse 8. Why? Because the wages of sin, Romans 3.23, calls, says that it's death. Christ had to die to pay the penalty for our sins. That's why he had to come and take on a human body. He had to become the incarnate Christ because God in his own nature cannot die. He's eternal. He was our substitute, bearing the punishment that we deserved. 1 Peter 3.18 says that he died as the just for the unjust so that he might bring us to God. That's where that reconciliation kicks in. See, while Jesus is definitely a great example for us to follow, and many people, they, if you ask them, well, what do you think of Jesus? Oh, he's a great example. Great example on how to live. His example will not save you. <laughs> Some people say, well, Jesus is a great teacher. Phenomenal teacher. Guess what? His teaching will not save you. It's only his death as our substitute which bore the awful penalty of God's justice. Jesus alone can save. Amen? And he does it through his death. It says Christ died for the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Bottom line here, third point quickly, is if we were helpless... If we were ungodly sinners in need of Christ's death to save us, then salvation cannot in any sense be due to human merit, work, or righteousness. It has to be based upon the gracious gift of God, his wonderful love. See, these verses do away with all works-based 
salvation. I grew up in a church where, boy, you had to go to mass, you had to go to communion, you had to go to confession, you had to do all this stuff. And if you did enough stuff, then maybe God would tap you on the head and say, oh, good. That's not the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, we were helpless, ungodly sinners. We were enemies of God. God did not come to help us save ourselves. That would be ridiculous. He did not come to die because somehow when he looked down, he saw some spark of potential in us. (laughs) He didn't come to die for us because we had some inherent worth in his sight. Charles Hodge puts it this way. He says, our salvation depends not on our loveliness, but on the constancy of the love of God. It's not based upon our loveliness, but on God's love. Now, hopefully you understand this is tremendous news. This is a blessing. It means that our hope of heaven is secure. It's secure because it doesn't have anything to do with us. In fact, I would even go as far as to say it's in spite of us. It has everything to do with God's gracious love for us while we were yet sinners. Let me be very clear. If you're sitting here this morning and you're not saved, it's because you have not received the free gift of salvation that God offers. Maybe you're still trying to earn your way to heaven. Maybe you still think somehow that there's some Inherent goodness in your soul. But if heaven is based on your works, you'll never be sure of it because you can never, ever do enough. I beg you, I ask you this morning, trust instead in God's loving gift of eternal life through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ who died for us while we were yet sinners. There's a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth, and he has some good stuff. I I wouldn't recommend all his stuff. But he was here in the United States, and he was at a question and answer session. And someone asked him this question, Dr. Barth, what is the greatest thought that has ever gone through your mind as a theologian? And I'm sure the questioner probably (laughs) expected some deep, incomprehensible answer. Like someone had just asked Einstein to explain the theory of relativity or something. Barth, he didn't hesitate. He thought about it for a second, and then he replied this. He simply said, Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. That's a good answer. That's a good answer. See, we don't want to get so far down in the weeds theologically that we miss God's amazing love. The Apostle Paul wants us 
not only to know intellectually, but also to feel experientially the great love of God as seen in the simple fact, the simple phrase, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Father, we pray this morning that your amazing love will penetrate deep into our hearts and minds. Lord, as believers, we turn to you with thankful hearts. We recognize clearly that there's nothing in us that's lovable. There was no goodness in us. We didn't figure this salvation thing out one day because of our own intellect. No, Lord, you graciously saved us. You called us to be your very own. And we understand that. And because of your grace and your mercy, you allowed us to respond to that gospel call. See, we can sometimes think that, well, yeah, salvation is all of God. So all we've got to do is just sit around and wait And one day, maybe he'll save me. That's the wrong kind of thinking. If you look throughout the Gospels, Jesus went around, he preached the Gospel. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand, turn. But he also went up to individuals. And his message was one of, you need to follow me. Follow me, Matthew. Follow me, Peter. And guess what? They did. They made a decision that Jesus was who he said he was and that they were going to give their lives to him. They were going to walk away from their tax booth or their fishing career, whatever it might be. And they were going to follow the Savior. That's no different than the gospel call today. It's true, we are helpless and hopeless without God working in our heart. But the mere fact that you're here this morning and you are hearing a message from God's word that's calling you to believe on the Savior, to yield your life to Him in complete surrender indicates that God is working. Will you follow Christ today? Will you answer His question affirmatively? Or will He turn and walk out of this building with you still sitting in your seat. See, all eternity weighs in the balance. Christ is the only Savior that there is. He's the only one that came and paid the price of your sin. I pray this morning the Lord would quicken your heart to understand and to affirm and to confess Him as Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you for your gracious 
this here with us this morning. We thank you that we were able to celebrate the death of your son through our communion together. That we were to look to your word to see your amazing love. And Father, it causes our hearts to be thankful. To be thankful that you saved us. That you quickened our hearts and our eyes to understand the gospel. That you gave us the faith to believe, to follow you. We pray, Lord, that you would just continue to allow us to live lives that are representative of Christ out in this world. That we would be able to share this life-saving gospel message with all those who have yet to believe in you. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.